So we are a couple of months into a year-long series where we are going from Genesis 1 to the end of the Bible. And we're using a tool called the Wayfinding Bible. We encourage you to get one. If you can't afford one, drop out to the welcome desk, and we would love, love to give you one. So here's what's happened so far. Genesis 1 and 2, God created and it was good. Man and woman are relating to each other, to God, to God's creation. They were co-gardening, caring, doing the thing that God had called them to. And then we get to Genesis 3, and it falls apart. We talked about in Genesis 3, the sin is unbelief. Unbelief that God is the good, loving, creator, ruler God who can actually rule his creation. And man and woman choose to be their own rulers. And things fall apart. And what we saw throughout the rest of the book of Genesis is that God is working through these different families. And uh, if there's anything that maybe should bring hope to you in, in the book of Genesis is that your family's not as dysfunctional as you think it is. It's dysfunctional, but it's not as dysfunctional as you think it is. And God uses these sort of messed up family systems to be about his goodwill. Then we come to the book of Exodus. And last week in Exodus 1 and 2, as we kicked it off, we looked at where God's people are. And God's people are in Egypt. They're in captivity. How long do they end up being in captivity? Shout it out. 400 years. Pretty good stay. Over 400 years, actually. And they go from Egypt, and the, we talked about the word for Egypt is this idea of this confined, this constricted uh, space. Things aren't right. Things aren't what they're supposed to be, and they know it. And we ask the question for it, like, where's that place for us? And then they go from Egypt, that confined, restricted space, into the wilderness. And they're in the wilderness for 40 years, and the word for wilderness can, be, can mean God speaks. They go from this place of hardship to more hardship. But yet in the midst of it, with Moses and Israel, God speaks. And what we'll find is that often in those places we hear God more clearly than we hear him on the mountaintops of life. That there's something in that place of need, in that place of crying out to God, that God actually speaks to us. Moses is this reluctant leader, this reluctant liberator. And if you look at chapters 3 through 13, the ones we're not going to cover through, uh, this morning, you see this narrative going on where God is in the process of freeing his people. Um, he has these plagues that encounter Egypt and the Passover narrative that happened in the chapter before this. And now we come to chapter 13 and we're going to read the second half of chapter 13 all the way through chapter 14. It says this, starting in verse 17. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through the Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Isn't it? In, there's certain things that we just, we don't have a lot of time to spend on, but you could underline that and just sort of think like, God knows his people. God knows you, and sometimes you're going in the roundabout way, but God knows that's the way you need to go. Or else you would quit, or else you would give up, whatever it might be. Verse 18. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness towards the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds. Thus the Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear to do this. He said, God will certainly come to help you. When he does, you must take my bones with you from this place. The Israelites, the Israelites left Succoth. And by the way, great name for a city, right? That, that's what we're renaming Mankato tonight when it starts snowing. <laughs> oh, sorry for that. Encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. 
The Lord went ahead of them. He guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud, and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. This allowed them to travel by day or by night, and the Lord did not remove the pillar of cloud or pillar of fire from its place in front of the people. And we see God taking this this physical thing and displaying his presence with them. And that is one of the key things that we see through Scripture time and time again. God with his people. In John 1, we see that God is fully with his people in human form. And we see hints of it as we go through God's story. We come to chapter 14. Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Order the Israelites to turn back and camp by Piharithoth toward Migdol in the sea. Camp there along the shore across from Belsavon. Then Pharaoh will think the Israelites are confused. They're trapped in the wilderness, and once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And, and by the way, that, that harden Pharaoh's heart, if you've ever read some of the Old Testament passages, you, you stop at that point, you're like, what, what does that mean? And, and what did God do? And that word for harden can also mean strengthened. That Pharaoh's heart and Egypt's heart was prone towards doing something, and it was something that was against the will of God, and for God's will to be done, God actually strengthens that resolve in that direction. And we're going to see it a couple of times in this passage. God strengthens their resolve towards this certain, certain thing so that God's will can actually be done. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart, strengthens the resolve of Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after you. I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and the whole army. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am Lord, so the Israelites camped there as they were told. When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done? Letting all the Israelite slaves go. And you can imagine, like, that's their workforce. What do we, we've got to do the hard, hard labor ourselves. What have we done? Verse 6, so Pharaoh harnessed his chariots and called up his troops. He took with him the 600 of Egypt's best chariots, along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. And then the Lord hardened, strengthened the resolve of Pharaoh's heart the king of Egypt. So he chased after the people of Israel who had left with fist raised high. And, and you, you can I mean, the 400 years, they are, they're made to do the worst jobs in the kingdom. They're now leaving. And it's like, yeah, whatever, you know, words that they, we probably couldn't say in church. They're happy to get out of there. They are gone. The Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in, in Pharaoh's army. All his horses and chariots, his charioteers and his troops, the Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near Piharithoth across from Belsavon. And listen to this. this. This is so, so, so us. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked. When they saw the Egyptians overtaking them, they cried to the Lord and said to Moses. So they're, they're complaining about God through Moses. Here's what they said. Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't, you tell, didn't we tell you this would happen? That's always the good one. Yeah, I told you this was going to happen while they're in Egypt. We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be slaves in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Like, you've been there, haven't you? I have. You start going down a road, and it's like, God, my plan, even though it was sort of messed up, even though it wasn't comfortable, it at least was my plan. Why are we going down this road? Can't we go back? I mean, I was in pain and misery. I was in sin, but can't we go back there because it's what I know? And you can imagine that's what's going on here. Verse 13. 
But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Another, we see that again and again in Scripture. Don't be afraid. Disciples in the upper room, Jesus comes after he's died. What does he say? Don't be afraid. Peace be with you. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. Those are some underlying words in Scripture. Stand still. That's hard. Stand still and let the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff, raise your hand over the sea, divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. By the way, the last time we, we, we heard that dry ground reference, it was Noah after God had delivered there. And I will harden the hearts, I will resolve the strength and the resolve of the hearts of the Egyptians and they will charge in after the Israelites. My glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops and his chariots and his charioteers when my glory is displayed through them. All Egypt will see my glory and know that I am Lord. Then the angel of the Lord who had been leading the people of Israel moved to the rear of the camp. The pillar of cloud also moved uh, from the front and stood behind them. So God's protecting them. This is between them and the Egyptians who are chasing them. The cloud settled between the Egyptians and the Israelites' camps. As darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire, lighting up the night. But the Egyptians and Israelites did not approach each other all night. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. Can you imagine this one? Sometimes, especially in our modern, everything has to be logical and scientific. We explain this stuff away. I tend to think it's true. Like This is a miracle of God. Pretty crazy, right? Dry ground, walls of water on both sides of you. This God is delivering us. Verse 23. Then the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horsemen, chariots, and charioteers, chased them into the middle of the sea. But just before dawn, the Lord looked down on the Egyptians, Egyptian army from the pillar of, pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw their forces into total confusion or, or panic. He twisted their chariot wheels, making the chariots difficult to drive. Let's get out of here, away from the Israelites. The Egyptians shouted, the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. When all the Israelites had reached the other side, the Lord said to Moses, raise your hand over the sea again, then the, the waters will rush back and cover the Egyptians and their chariot, chariots and their charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea. The water rushed back into its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. And the water returned and covered all the chariots, the charioteers, and the entire army of Pharaoh, of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea. Not a single one survived. I want to stop here for a second, just do a little bit of a side route, because I, I don't know about you. There's a number of places in the Old Testament where we have narratives like this, right? Where the narrative is God frees his people, but in the act of freeing his people, he just demolishes, takes out a whole other group of people. And if you read it honestly, probably most of us find that a little disturbing. Like, who, who is that God and, and what does that mean? And, and in the Old Testament, we, and in fact, in the next chapter, as God's people worship him, you get language of God as divine warrior. And, and we, we can see that. God's freeing his people. That makes sense. But this whole, does it have to happen this way? I don't know about you. I, I wrestle with that. Because most of us probably want to and do see God more through the lens of the loving Father. 
The kid who runs away and comes back, and there's the father running passionately to that son to free him from anything that would happen. And if we're really honest, it's tough. It's tough to read these passages. It's tough to interpret these passages. And what I don't want us to do, and what many do, is often is, is sort of, we would take these passages and we almost just cut them out in our mind. Like, it doesn't make sense. It's not the God I know, so let's just cut it out and let's get rid of it. I don't think that's fair to the narrative of Scripture. I think what's fair is that we wrestle with it. I, this is one of those, those sort of theological things I've been wrestling with my, my whole ministry life, 20 years. And it's hard. One of the greatest hopes, and I look back at this, and I think it's true. I believe that this happened. But one of my greatest hopes is John chapter 1, 1 through 15. That everything we know about God is seen in Jesus Christ. How do I understand? I don't know. It's really hard. It doesn't make sense. I don't like it. But John 1 tells us that everything we know about God is seen in Jesus Christ. That he is God expressed in human form. And so the invitation that I would give you is wrestle with these. Be okay with some of the, the we see through a glass dimly. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us on this side of eternity. You don't have to put God in a little box. Be okay wrestling with these type of passages. But hold on to the promise. that The God of scripture, we see him most fully expressed in who Jesus Christ is. Okay. Now that I've given you just a little thing to think about for the next week, we jump on to verse 29. But the people of, of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground. As the water stood up like a wall on both sides, this is how the Lord rescued Israel from the hand of the Egyptians that day. And Israel saw the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed, unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Come back to that, that last verse at the end. Let me give you two takeaways, and they're, they're sort of related. Let me just give you two takeaways as we, we walk away this morning. The first one is this, and it's around Egypt and the wilderness and this hope of deliverance. In the 6th century, God's people Israel, they're under Persian rule. Can you imagine if they're reading the first part of the book of Exodus, they are reading and looking at it and saying, that's our story. We're not under Egyptian rule, but we're now under Persian rule, and that's the same God that we hope for. We hope that he will free us from this constricted, narrow, confined space that's not right. It's not what we had been promised. And again, in, in, in this sort of idea, as we understand and see our story in many of these texts, I encourage you to wrestle with these questions. What is your Egypt? What's that place where you know it's just not right? It's messed up. Whether it's your doing or something that has gone on in your life, what's the Egypt in your life? The constricted space where it just it, it's, it's not good. And we also know, we, we know that often the challenge of being in the Egypt, and when we come sort of out of the Egypt, we go into the wilderness for a time. We also know that's where God speaks. And being okay letting God speak to you in that place is such an important part of the journey. A couple of great conversations over the last couple of weeks with people 
right in the middle of Egypt, right in the middle of the wilderness. And yet saying, I've never heard from God more clearly, clearly than I am now. Life is not good. It's not what I want it to be. But I'm hearing from God. Where are you in the midst of that journey? I think we see in chapters 13 and 14 the cloud and the fire and this invitation to stand fast and see. We see God inviting us to faithfulness in the midst of those places. To be there, to be with God, and to hear from God in the midst of whatever it is. Egypt, the wilderness, the hope of deliverance. The second one I want to spend a little more time which is around the story of the Exodus. If, if you are a faithful, especially coming into the first century, if you are a faithful Israelite, this is one of the top probably two stories that you know. The story of the Exodus had been handed down from generation to generation to generation. And people in the first century, they had language. They were looking for a new exodus. They were looking for the second exodus. They were looking for the second Moses. They are now under Roman rule, and they want to be freed and liberated. A couple of passages that, that they would have referred to. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18 says this. Moses continued, The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him, for this is what you requested you yourselves requested of the Lord, your God, when you assembled at Mount Sinai. You said, don't let us hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore or see this blazing fire or we will die. Then the Lord said to me, what they have said is right. I will raise up a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my word in his mouth and he will tell the people everything I command. They were still hoping for this. Jeremiah 31 says, the day is coming, says the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah, this covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant. Though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after these days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They were hoping for this new deliverance. And what Jesus does is Jesus brings in the second exodus. Not the way they wanted, not maybe the way they had hoped, but it's the way that they actually needed, that Jesus, the new Moses, liberates them. That Israel's story and our story are similar in some ways. Israel were slaves, they were in bondage, things weren't right. We're in sin, separated from God, and we know that things are not right, and we are in need, we are in need of being delivered by God. This fall, he started a Thursday morning small group with a, a group of guys that is just absolutely amazing. And we're going through a book called The Gospel-Centered Life. And uh, in this book, at the very front of it, it's about three pages, they give an overview of what the gospel is. Because this sex, second exodus that Jesus ushered in, it's huge. It is cosmic. And it's personal. So what I want to do, and this is a little different, um, it's a little bit uncomfortable when somebody asks you to close your eyes, but I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for about five minutes while I read what this second exodus is all about, how God wants to liberate you, what God's plan is really all about. The story begins, not with us, but with God. Deep down, we have a sense that this is true. We sense that we are important. 
that there is something dignified, majestic, and eternal about humanity. We also know that we are not ultimate. Something or someone greater than us exists. The Bible tells us that this someone is the one infinite, eternal, and unchanging God who created all things out of nothing. This one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because God is triune in his being, he wasn't motivated to create the world because he needed something, be it relationship, worship, or glory. Rather, he created out of the overflow of his perfection, his own love, goodness, and glory. God made human beings in his image, which is what gives us our dignity and value. He also made us human, which means we are created beings dependent on our creator. We were made to worship, enjoy, love, and serve him, not ourselves. In God's original creation, everything was good. The world existed in perfect peace, stability, harmony, and wholeness. God created us to worship, enjoy, love, and serve him. But rather than live under God's authority, humanity turned away from God in sinful rebellion. Our defection plunged the whole world into the darkness and chaos of sin. Though vestiges of good remain, the wholeness and harmony of God's original creation is shattered. As a result, all human beings are sinners by nature and by choice. We often excuse our sin by claiming that we're not that bad. After all, we can always find someone worse than we are. But this evasion only reveals our shallow and superficial view of sin. Sin is not primarily an action. It's a disposition. It's our soul's aversion to God. Sin is manifested in our pride, our selfishness, our independence, our lack of love for God and others. Sin, sometimes sin is very obvious and external. Other times it's hidden and internal. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin brings two drastic consequences into our life. First, sin enslaves us. When we turn from God, we turn to other things to find life, our identity, our meaning, and our happiness. These things have become substitute gods, what the Bible calls idols, and they soon enslave us, demanding our time, our energy, our loyalty, our money, everything we are and have. They begin to rule over our lives and hearts. This is why the Bible describes sin as something that masters us. Sin causes us to serve created things rather than the Creator. Second, sin brings condemnation. We're not just enslaved by sin, we're guilty of it. We stand condemned before the judge of heaven and earth. The wages of sin is death. We're under a death sentence for our cosmic treason against the holiness and justice of God. His righteous anger towards sin stands over us. Every good story needs a hero. The hero of the gospel story is Jesus. Humanity needs a savior, a redeemer, a deliverer to free us from the bondage and condemnation of sin, to restore the world to its original good. And this rescuer must be truly human in order to pay the debt we owe to God. But he can't be merely human because he must conquer sin. We need a substitute, one who can live the life of obedience we failed to live and who can stand in our place to bear the punishment we deserve for our disobedience and sin. This is why God sent Jesus into the world to be our substitute. The Bible teaches that Jesus was fully God, the second person of the Trinity, and also fully human. 
He was born to a human mother, lived a real flesh and blood existence, and died a brutal death on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God, making him the only person in history who did not deserve judgment. But on the cross, he took our place, dying for our sin. He received the condemnation and death we deserve, so that when we put our trust in him, we can receive the blessing and life he deserves. And not only did Jesus die in our place, he rose from death, displaying victory over sin and hell. His resurrection is a decisive event in history. The Bible calls it the first fruits, the initial evidence of God's cosmic renewal, the, the cosmic renewal God is bringing. One of the greatest promises in the Bible is Revelation 21.5. Behold, I am making all things new. All that was lost, broken, corrupted in the fall will ultimately be put to right. Redemption doesn't simply mean the salvation of individual souls. It means the, the restoring of the whole creation back to its re- original good. So how do you become part of this story? How do you experience God's salvation personally and become agents of his redemption in the world? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it's by faith by trust. What does it mean? We trust a taxi driver when we count on him to get us to our destination. We trust a doctor when we agree with her diagnosis and trust ourselves to her care. We trust in Jesus Christ when we admit our sin, receive his gracious forgiveness, and rest entirely in Jesus for our acceptance before God. Faith is like getting into the taxi. It's like going under the surgeon's knives. It's a restful, wholehearted commitment of the self to Jesus. This is what it means to believe the gospel. When we trust in Jesus, we are released from sin's condemnation, from its bondage. We are free to say no to sin and yes to God. We are free to die to ourselves and live for Christ and his purposes. We are free to work for justice in the world. We are free to stop living for our own glory and start living for the glory of God. We are free to love God and others in the way we live. God has promised that Jesus will return to finally judge sin and make all things new. Until then, he is gathering to himself a people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. As part of this called and sent people, we have the privilege of joining him in this mission as individuals and as part of a spiritual family, by grace, we can enjoy God, live for his glory, serve humanity, and make his gospel known to others through our words and actions. This is the good news, the true story, the second exodus. This is the gospel. Father, too often we minimize the beauty of who you are, the good news of the gospel. And we do ourselves a disservice because this second exodus, what Jesus has done to liberate and free, it is big, it's cosmic, but it's also personal, God. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in this room who maybe for the first time is hearing this story, God, I pray that they would trust you, repent of their sin, and put their full trust in you. And in this story, that the new creation has begun in what Jesus did in his life and his death and his resurrection. And we are personally and together invited to be a part of that. 
Give us faith. Give us trust. Forgive our unbelief and give us the faith we need to live into this story. Pray this in your precious and most holy name. Amen.